Recovery Greenhouse is a podcast dedicated to the growth of ideas, concepts, and outlooks that support recovery and recovery in communities. I'm Gerald Lott, your host and a person in long-term recovery. I'm also founder and executive director of Salt Valley Voices of Recovery. We're a recovery community organization serving Northwest Illinois. I'm a certified recovery support specialist. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a father. I'm I'm a ton of things. After a long list of careers, I found my calling in helping others to find recovery. I presently work with a bunch of people and several addiction-related advisory boards every day. And my core belief is that people must make an effort to change their lives for recovery. There's a saying, no pain, no gain, and it's exactly correct. I don't think a person can experience significant life changes without enduring, accepting, often welcoming discomfort. You see, it isn't the change that hurts, it's our resistance to it. Um, I appreciate you joining me for this uh, episode of the Recovery Greenhouse. Um, as I mentioned a couple weeks back, we're going to be using some of our Tuesday talk Uh, content that we did through Project Open at KSB Hospital because some of it just needs to get out again. And uh, this week, we're using an interview that Akil Khan of KSB did with Tim Ryan. Tim is the uh, author of a book called uh, From Dope to Hope, and uh, he was uh, A&E's dope man on their series of the same name. Uh, Tim was instrumental in helping get some programming going here in Dixon, Illinois, and uh, we've kept in touch with him. And so it was great to kind of revisit where he's at and what's going on with him. So I hope you enjoy. Here's the interview. Hello, and welcome to Tuesday Talk, Project Open's weekly podcast, bringing the topics of prevention, treatment, recovery, and basically anything substance use disorder and addiction related to the forefront of local conversations. Uh, my name is Akhil Khan. I'm the director of Project Open, which is our multi-county grant here in rural Northwest Illinois. But today with us, we have a national thought leader, Tim Ryan. Tim Ryan is a recovering heroin addict. He is A&E's dope man and a national thought leader on the opioid epidemic, uh, addiction, mental health, and suicide. Uh, he's a tireless advocate for long-term recovery. And Tim is no stranger to addiction. Uh, despite a successful business career, Tim found himself in the grips of heroin. Tim's addiction led him into prison where he served years for a drug-related conviction. He became clean and sober behind bars. And six months after his release, he was paving the way for his son, Nick, showing him that there's no future in drugs when tragedy struck. Uh, Unfortunately, Nick died of a drug overdose. Uh, Reaching beyond the devastation and heartbreak, Tim used Nick's death as an inspiration to spread hope, believing that if even one addict or family could be spared the horrors of addiction, he would make a difference. As a result, he founded a Man in Recovery Foundation, which is a not-for-profit that helps people find treatment in recovery. He ran that foundation for six years, assisting thousands of families. And I'm very excited to show and talk to the listeners about that. Tim actually has a local connection to Dixon, and we'll get into that a little bit later. Uh, Tim, uh, Today, Tim is the subject of the A&E documentary, Dope Man, which reaches millions of viewers. He has been featured as a thought leader in numerous national media and television shows, including USA Today's Newsweek, Chicago Tribune, The Steve Harvey Show with Dr. Drew, Doctor's TV Show, Inside Edition, Tamron Hall TV Show, and a number of other nationally syndicated radio shows. He's also the author of a best-selling book, From Dope to Hope. And there's a write-up in the 2000, in 2018 in Real Leaders Magazine as, as Tim being one of the top 100 visionary thought leaders in the world. 
Um, he was invited to be a guest in the 2016 State of the Union address, which was given by our 44th President Barack Obama. And I mean, we can honestly spend an hour talking about all of Tim's credentials and accolades. But I think what our listeners really want to get into is 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 the is the man here on the screen. So Tim, if you don't mind, add anything to that introduction, and then just give a little bit of background about yourself. And 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 you struggle with addiction, you know, and you've got lived experience. If you don't mind, let's dive into it. Yeah, you know, I'm just uh, I'm just another guy in recovery here. You know, I, I'm Tim Ryan, a grateful recovering alcoholic and drug addict. It's as simple as that. You know, I never in a million years thought I would be doing the things I've, I've done in the past, you know, eight years since walking out of the Illinois Department of Corrections. Um, but, you know, my a, a little bit on my background, you know, I grew up in northern Illinois on a lake called Crystal Lake. Uh, we're all adopted. My older brother's a couple years older than me. There's me, my little brother and sister. They're three-quarter Chippewa Indian, Native American. So when we grew up in Crystal Lake, there was no Hispanics. There was no African Americans. There was nobody of Indian descent. There was two dark-skinned kids, and it was my brother and sister. <laughs> and we grew up with a lot of racism um, because they were so dark-skinned. So I learned to protect them, my brother and sister, with my hands and my mouth. Um, we didn't have a bad life. You know, my, my, my parents adopted four kids. My dad worked at the Board of Trade for 26 years. He, he never missed a day of work. You know, we had work ethic. We had dinner every night at 6.30. But at 14, I started drinking. The drinking age in eighteen in uh, Wisconsin was still 18 years old. So at 14, I'm going up to Wisconsin drinking every weekend with my best friend, Randy, who was a senior. At 15, I tried cocaine. And all I really cared about in high school was water skiing. I lived on a lake. I was a competitive water skier. Uh, but if you came to the house to water ski, you either brought uh, boat gas, you brought booze, or you brought the, the ladies to come in the boat and watch us <laughs> ski. But no, there was no consequences. Nobody was getting in trouble. You know, I made it through high school. I went down to college in Louisiana and I got into to, to more drugs and ultimately dropped out. And, and long story short, was at 21 years old, I checked myself into treatment uh, in 1990, the first time um, I, I wanted to quit doing cocaine. I wanted to figure out how to drink like a normal person. But that journey started me on my introduction to the 12-step community and, and attending 12-step-based meetings. And from 1990 up until October 30th of 2012, when I was sentenced to prison, I was in and out of the 12-step-based rooms. I think in that 25 years or so, whatever amount of time it was, I probably had a year and a half of continuous sobriety. That was it. And ultimately, in, in sobriety, I was married. I, I had a wife. I had four kids. I was about 14 months sober. And I, I took a kid from a 12-step base meeting to move out of his apartment in Chicago. And as we're moving Joel out, out of the bedroom, his roommate Saba pops. And he said, what are you doing here? I said, I'm moving out your roommate Joel. What are you doing? He said, I'm doing heroin. You want to do some? And I said, sure. Now, I'm 14 months sober, going to meetings, 12-step base meetings, but I never really got a sponsor, worked the steps. I thought I could get sober through osmosis. And what's one bag of heroin going to do? That one bag of heroin turned into a 12-year habit. Um, I'd overdosed uh, eight times, been clinically dead three, um, two mild heart attacks from cocaine use. You know, it just got worse and worse and worse until ultimately um, October 30th of 2012, after a 12-year heroin addiction, 
I was sentenced to seven years in the Illinois Department of Corrections for my third DUI, which was aggravated. I overdosed on heroin. I hit a few cars, almost killed four people. By the grace of God, they were all okay. Um, but they charged me with my fifth driving on revoke, the spoon and syringe. And, you know, I, uh, I, I can remember Judge Wattis at Cook County Jail slamming that gavel and saying seven years. And, and I was done. I, I, it's like I wanted to go to prison. I needed to be sat down and I was completely dope sick, uh, kicking opiates. Uh, I don't think I slept a wink for a month, but I was able to get transferred to Sheridan Prison in Illinois. Uh, which at the time they have 28 prisons, they have two with therapeutic drug treatment programs and the West Care program, a little effort on myself, my, my cellmate, Big Perk, uh, you know, that program saved my life in the 12 step based program. And that's where I really plugged into recovery was in that prison cell. Uh, my wife divorced me, lost her home in foreclosure. My oldest son was in active addiction. I did 13 and a half months in prison. And for the first time in my life, I had 13 and a half months clean and sober. I, got out. My former wife picked me up. Her and my mom had found a little townhouse in a, in a town called Naperville. Uh, my mom had paid the rent for three months, put a hundred bucks a week in my bank account, said that'll last for three months. You're on your own, figure it out. And uh, I went back into the technology space. I put recovery first, got another sponsor for two and a half years, never missed a meeting. And about three months in now, I was commuting from Naperville, Illinois to Chicago. I'd walk to the train station, take another train to Palatine, and then take a bus to work. I was commuting two and a half, two and a half hours one way to work, yeah. uh, five days a week. I was back every night for an 8 o'clock, 12-step base meeting. And about uh, three months in, I just didn't want to do it. I called my mom, I borrowed 15 grand, and I set up a Man of Recovery Foundation, a, a nonprofit to guide and direct indigent people <clears throat> into treatment, <clears throat> into sober living. And I thought I'd pay myself 50 grand a year and save the world. Then I stumbled into working in the treatment industry. And, and as you had mentioned earlier, unfortunately, on my 21 month sobriety date, my 20 year old son Nicholas succumbed to an accidental drug overdose. And you know, I, I went to a 12-step base meeting that night. I, I never looked back. And, uh, you know, Nick had been to treatment six times. He knew what to do. He had been in sober living. He, he chose to use again, and, and it got him. And, you know, since my son died, I've been to 150 funerals. I quit going. I've, I've helped assist thousands of people on the road to recovery. And, yeah, I've had some cool things happen, but I'm telling you, it's, it doesn't seem to be getting any better out there. Overdose rates are at record high. Alcoholism deaths are at a record high. Suicides at record high. Mental health crisis calls are at record high. What we're doing is not working. And, and the, the entire system needs to be shifted in my view. But uh, who am I? I'm just some guy out here sober trying to, trying to make a little bit of a difference. And, uh, you know, today then... Uh, you know, I met my amazing wife three years ago. I was in the middle of a second horrific relationship that I stayed in because I had a, a little daughter and, and I have a blessing of a child today, a uh, six-year-old daughter. God called one home, blessed me with another. But uh, I was working and traveling and speaking and doing interventions, but I... I was in a relationship for the wrong reasons. And I got out of that and I, I was looking to partner up with my, my wife strictly on business. Uh, her name's Jennifer Jimenez. She was a, a supermodel and an actress and 
she's coming up on 16 years sober, but I wanted to partner to speak, to do interventions, to maybe open a, a program together. And when I finally met Jennifer, I'm in the middle of my second divorce and it was love at first sight. I finished that divorce. Six months later, we were engaged. Six months later, we were married. And now my wife and I, uh, we speak nationwide, internationally on, as you had said, mental health, substance abuse, trauma. She speaks on eating disorders, suicide, bullying. But it's all, it's real talk with solutions. We do interventions and we do consulting. She still do, does acting and modeling. And we live between... Uh, Los Angeles and, and South Florida and are in Chicago all the time because I've got a bunch of kids there and that's kind of my story and I'm sticking to it. How's that? <laughs> that is, I mean, you talk about a roller coaster ride over there from, I mean, uh, let's go back to the beginning. Growing yep. up in Crystal Lake, adopted, you know, we always talk about addiction doesn't discriminate, right? But there is a higher propensity for lower income individuals or un you know people without college educations that might get, you know, might start using. How do you feel about that statement? And did did your upbringing and maybe the absence of knowing your parents did that have any effect on you or not really? I don't think so. At least subconsciously, I didn't. It's interesting because. Two and a half years out of prison, maybe even two years out of prison, I'm, at down, I'm in downtown Chicago, I'm working for a treatment center, and I'm at a, a conference, and there's this gentleman, Dr. Gabor Mate, is the keynote speaker, and he's been a, a clinician for 40 years, he's out of Canada, and, and he, this whole disease and its choices, he, he says, throw all that out the window, he said, addiction is all stem from trauma, either emotional mm -hmm. loss, mental, physical, spiritual, or sexual, and I... I hear him talking and I'm like, I don't have any trauma. Then he asked a question. He said, how many people in the audience are adopted? And there's about 300 of us, about 20 of our put, 20 of us put our hands up. He said, do you realize you're 48,000 times more susceptible to become an alcoholic or drug addict due to the abandonment issues? Then I started looking at my life. Okay, I was adopted. Uh, I had the learning disabilities. I had an older brother that was a narcissist that beat me up every day, molested by the babysitter at 10 years old. Boom, there's my trauma. Drugs and alcohol became my solution to compartmentalize everything. I didn't really start understanding all these things that had happened or how they took place until I got sober and started doing some hardcore therapy work. You know what I mean? Um, so I suggest everybody has a therapist or the best things out there. So anyhow, I think it all stems from some form of trauma. I, I I totally agree with you, and um, you you mentioned an important point, therapist, right? Normalizing that conversation. Everyone, you go see the doctor, no one ever looks at you twice, right? But you say, "I'm going to see a therapist," even if you're, we like to call it brain health here as part of our stigma campaign. Sure. Uh, our little gospel calls brain. You know, brain. The brain can have good days, bad days, and going to see a therapist on the bad days is even going to see you on the good days. Why not to to maintain and like preventive checks? But it's so stigmatized. People start to look at you a little bit differently, like, "Oh, you kind of got an issue." How do we combat that? How do we change that narrative? You know, unfortunately, I got to tell you, the narrative, everyone's talking, drop the stigma and, and change the words. And I will tell you, though, this working in the treatment industry, recovery industry is the most disgusting industry I've ever worked in in my entire life. I have never seen more hateful people from clinicians to business development to treatment owners to people that work in, that are supposed to be helping each other 
But there's so much jealousy, backstabbing, hate. And, you know, the thing with social media today is people post something out there and people believe it. And it's not true. And unfortunately, I love to see things come together. But uh, you, you, you have so many facets. You have for-profit treatment centers, non-for-profits, people that have uh, HMO insurance, no insurance, state insurance. You know, everybody should be able to get the option to get treatment, whether you have resources or not, and should be able to get the best options available. But unfortunately, it doesn't happen. Like when I'm in prison, we had a therapeutic community. Um, that therapeutic community, the clinicians, bless all of them, but they're, uh, they're probably the lowest paid individuals I've ever seen working in one of the roughest environments. I mean, pay people what they're worth to keep them around. And so I don't know, there's, I could go on a rant on the industry forever. I mean, there's some great well, we're people. Gonna, we're going to get to that in a second. So yeah. you talk about, so I think this is a perfect show to talk about the broke. I got a, still a bunch more questions from the past, but we'll, we'll sure. get to them eventually. Um, you, you mentioned that, you know, so right now here locally, we're in rural America. Um, there's no treatment center within an hour. Um, uh, medical detox is starting to become more formalized. It's starting to come. That's helping the local people, but then they got to leave the area to go. But then there's there's bed stipulations. Oh, your Medicaid, we're full for Medicaid, right? Uh, oh, your private insurance, come on, come on. And, and I can't help but think of the saying I've heard multiple times over and over again. Recovery is a business, right? It absolutely is. It. I'll tell you right now. So I carry a short-term health care insurance policy for myself, my wife, and my six-year-old daughter that cost me just for a six-month short-term policy is about 1200 a month if i want a good insurance policy it's going to cost us about 2500 dollars a month um a lot of people can't afford good insurance today unfortunately with covid and <clears throat> everything happening and you know that's it's all insurance driven and you take someone that has an HMO insurance policy, their loved one's going to certify for 14 to 21 days of treatment. That's it. That's all they get. And it's not long enough. Yeah. Who's to say that that was what was needed. Some you might need a lot longer, but you know, it's just a, I, you know, you said you talked about for-profit, non-for-profit and, and we work for a non-for-profit here at KSB hospital. That's who's the sponsor of the project open grant, but the saying no money, no mission. Right. So, you know, even though it's non for profit or for profit, you still got to got to run it to make money and just you know, and how it works. How would you change that? I mean, you, you said there's a lot of broken ways about the system. If money's the way that goes wrong is make the wheel go around. How is there a way? Do you see a, a way out of this to change that so that everyone gets equitable access to the same amount of resources? No, it never will. Never will. Money drives everything. And unfortunately, the people that have it will always um want more want more amenities i mean i see some of these treatment programs they're 150,000 a month cash pay and granted you get lobster and you're on the ocean but they they baby these people more than than benefit them and i go back to i got sober in a prison cell with the big book of alcoholics anonymous and a former chicago gang chief for 25 years and and we did the deal um i think we need more funding to have longer term programs. I mean, programs need to be 90 days to six months with continued sober living. People should be in a program for a minimum of a year, a minimum. Um, what's, your definition of, what's your definition of a program though? 
full detox residential, step down to PHP, step down to IOP, or more health and wellness centers that are working on the outside of the substance abuse, the, the nine dimensions of wellness. Because what people ultimately need is connection and purpose, whether they need to be connected into a career, into a college career, or into social circles. Um, people need to be connected with people they can learn from and benefit from. I mean, you're, you're the product of the five people you associate with the most, but even when people are, you know, 90 days sober and transitioning into structured, sober living, um, they need the accountability. They need the purpose. They need the connection outside. It's just people need a routine and they need structure. Um, and we need to implement a lot more of that outside of touchy feelings and how are your feelings and your feelings. Let's get down to causes and conditions. I think we need more real talk and treatment too. I see way too many people getting babied because they have good insurance and they don't want to piss off the client with good insurance and tell them the truth because he might leave. But on the flip side, if you don't tell that person the truth and you baby it, they leave, they relapse, they die. And if they don't die, they're back in treatment. You're making more money and you do that vicious cycle until they unfortunately do die. Yeah, it's it's crazy. I've I've worked for treatment centers, but I'd have people call. I wouldn't take them, you know, <clears throat> come once you relapse, you can come back. But after that, go elsewhere. You know, you've been here two times. I've seen programs take people five, six, seven, eight, nine times over and over and over again. My son that died, you know, he had been to the same treatment center five times and I I just, I didn't know where to send them, but I had really good insurance. I could have put them on a plane and put them in a 90 day to six month program. I didn't know they existed. I didn't know what I didn't know. So I sent them to the same program five times. And another time I sent them to, to Rosecrans and Rockford. Um, I would have done things so much differently. I just didn't know what to do. And that's a problem. A lot of people, Joe or Bobby or Sue put their hand up for help. Families don't know where to go. They go to Google, they type in rehab and, and then they're overloaded with all the places that are paying for ads and they're just trying to get Bobby or Susie help. So you, you mentioned that you had multiple cycles, right? Cause you know, we know that it's um, what I've learned is that it's, you know, oftentimes it takes multiple times until you enter successful recovery. And you mentioned that, you had voluntarily done it your first time. You voluntarily admitted, but then you're saying that we need to go to multiple different treatment centers. How would someone in rural America? No, I'm not. I'm not saying. I'm don't don't say that. I've never said anybody needs to go to multiple treatment centers ever. Nobody should have to. People should not be going to treatment multiple times. The reason they're going multiple times is because they were getting crap treatment out of the gate. They weren't getting treatment. Okay. You know, you take a person and put them in a group with 40 people and have a a clinician that's 22 years old working as an intern running that group for three hours, you're not gonna learn anything. What am I gonna, I did drugs longer than that girl's been alive. What the hell is she gonna teach me? You know, we we need to, this is life and death here. And that's what people don't understand, especially with the fentanyl today, there's no coming back, you die. You know, so let's quit worrying about people's feelings and get down to the truth here and get them sober. I, I, I use a lot of peer driven programs for my chronic people that are chronic relapsers. 
I've got a place in South Carolina. It's a four-month program. I called an AA Big Book Boot Camp. Guess what? People are staying sober there because they're having to do the work. They're going through the steps, and they're helping other people go through the steps. I can't tell you how many people go to treatment and have never heard about Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous or Celebrate Recovery or Smart Recovery or Refuge Recovery because that's up to the individual to figure out. They don't teach them that in treatment. Some places, some places do, but a majority don't. So, so, so thanks for clarifying that. So you're saying that if at the first point of contact, if we actually provide the proper treatment, there wouldn't be these cycles. But you're saying absolutely. That right now, yep. the system is, in fact, that, you know, we know someone comes in, they, they try their best or they're just going through the motions. Relapse happens. And your recommendation is don't go back to the same place because it didn't work for you. Yeah, try, try something I would, maybe different. once or twice. But, you know. You, you need to be working with not only the addiction, the, the alcoholism or drug addiction, you need to be working with the mental health component and you need to be working with the trauma component. So try finding uh, EMDR certified level one and two trauma therapists mm-hmm. to work with someone on state insurance. Going to one of the local programs and where you are in Illinois, you're not going to get it. You yeah. will not get it. So we are doing a disservice to the clientele that are going and asking for help when in those situations, they usually see a therapist for a half hour once a week. So they do a three week stay. They got an hour and a half of therapy and all the rest they did was sit in some groups and listen to somebody talk. That's treatment. That's not treatment. That, yeah. That's putting a Band-Aid on a bullet wound. And no wonder why people are relapsing and dying and committing suicide and coming back because we're not giving them the appropriate care. You need people usually clear 90 days, 90 days off everything to give a proper psychiatric diagnosis. And and people are already out of treatment and gone. Right. Now, I, I'm happy you brought up EMDR. My father passed away in 2012, and just a couple of years ago, I tried EMDR just to help because I felt like I still had things locked in, some demons still locked in. Yeah, tried EMDR, and um, you know, it's a, it's a good it's a, it's a good aspect. It, you have to approach it from a holistic view. You can't just if you treat this one part over here, something else moves over here. Treat the whole person. We talk about social determinants of health. Healthcare is only a, a very minor portion of someone's well-being. There's so many other aspects, the social aspect, the nutritional aspect, the physical environment, the neighborhood they grow up, education, socioeconomic side, all that impacts it. And so, I mean, we're, you know, there's a big push to start embedding social workers into medical practices to once you, you know, you address health issues, but once you identify social issues or housing issues or child care issues, you can do all that at the point of care. Is there some model like that that might work in uh, or have you seen a model like that for uh, helping people with uh, recovery? Not that, de- not that detailed. I mean, you've got, like out here in Los Angeles, you have Homeboy Industries that Father Gregory Boyle started. And it's a <clears throat> reentry program for gang members or people coming out of the prison system. And they they integrate them into the program. They pay them a week, uh, a 40-hour-a-week salary. 20 hours the week, they're getting training and parenting, anger management, recovery, whatever. The other 20 hours a week, they're learning a trade skill. So they'll do culinary arts. They'll do the bakery. They'll do the kitchen. They'll do the screen printing. They'll do the welding. But they integrate people back into society and give them jobs and careers. We need more 
organizations like that in the recovery industry. I've seen some great programs. It might be long term for indigent or whatever, like in San Antonio, Texas. I mean, they've got you can be homeless and come off the street and walk into detox. You can have kids and stay there and they'll bus your kids to school. But getting people then connected with the career moves and all that, I think we need to get away with a lot of the felony backgrounds and things and give people a shot at, at getting their life back once they get sober. Because you have a lot of people that had a criminal background or whatever, they get sober, they do the sober living, but they can't get a job outside of McDonald's or Taco Bell it gets real frustrating. One of the big projects we're doing on that front is it started in New Hampshire called the Recovery Friendly Workplace, where we're trying to make workplaces more recovery friendly because we know that 70% of people who use illicit drugs are about 66%. They're actively employed. And, yep. and, and it costs the economy. If you look at it just globally, If because you mentioned money and dollars and cents, and I agree that that's what makes the grease, you know, it's the grease that makes the world go around. It costs the United States billions of dollars in lost absenteeism, you know, lost productivity, turnover. And then if you can make the workplaces more recovery friendly, people might then seek help because they can go talk to their managers about it. And then the other side of that coin is helping employers relook at antiquated hiring practices. Right, That might be your best worker you have sitting there in front of you. But they have a nonviolent drug felony from eight years ago. You hire them, then they, they get screened out in the background check. And that person then, unfortunately... Employment's one of the, would you agree, employment's one of the biggest factors to sustaining recovery, and then they get kicked out of that. Yep, I, I absolutely agree. And, you know, unfortunately, that's probably one of the, I don't know, I've always had a type A personality, but that's one of the reasons I work for myself and start my own businesses is because I don't ever want to be in a situation, someone saying, oh, you've had, uh, you didn't have a driver's license for 20 years, you know, mm -hmm. you can't work for us, you know, and people want to live through, we, we need to work on cleaning those things up, you know, people have hit that five-year mark in long-term, over five years sober, they're considered in long-term recovery, their chances of relapse and are, are very minimal, give these people an opportunity, like you said, they're some of your best employees, I was a recruiter for 23 years, and uh, I can tell you the people that were were sober were the best employees ever. And actually, a lot of people that were in addiction were really good employees, and they'd be a hell of a lot better if they got sober. There's a stat. I don't have it in front of me right now, but I think it's uh, – I'll speak generally. I don't have the numbers exactly. But people who are in recovery miss fewer days of work as compared to those who are not, and, and then they have lower turnover. I think it's 9.5 days to 10.5 days annually. And 21%, maybe 22% as compared to 25% to the general workforce. So uh, there's actually data around that that quantifies that people who are in recovery are going to be very motivated to work. And we know housing, employment, transportation, those are kind of your big three. And in rural America, we're trying to address all those. And I'll, I'll start with the housing front. We're looking at starting a sober living home. A local recovery community organization, Sockfly Voices of Recovery, is looking to start a sober living home because people are being driven hours away for treatment. They want to come back to the local area, but they have nowhere else to go besides the house that they got picked up from. Right. This is happening. What's your views on sober living? Uh, sober livings are essential. What happens, unfortunately, is a lot of communities. We don't want those people in our neighborhood. We'd rather have John Polo, the, the child molester, live in two, two doors next door than Bob and Sue that are, you know, sober trying to turn their lives around. I mean, these are people that are productive members of society. These are the people you want in your neighborhoods um, that are gonna 
not only take care of the property, they're going to take care of the neighborhood and, and keep the riffraff out. Um, they're the best people there. And what people need to understand is the Oxford homes, which have 10,000 sober homes nationwide, DePaul University has done an evidence-based study on them for the past 16 years. Any community in the United States they've ever tried to open a sober living in, they've won. You cannot discriminate due to the Fair Housing Act against people struggling with mental health or substance misuse disorder. So they're needed, essential, and uh, they're a must. I mean, they're absolutely a must in a community. You know, the, the funny thing I heard is that you, you, that's the one house in the in the neighborhood that you can guarantee doesn't have drug use in it, right? I mean, and all the neighbors around it might have that drug use, but the sober living home. Um, but that that not in my backyard mentality. How do you overcome that with sober living homes? By education, by educating people. I mean, today, I don't think there's a person out there that doesn't have a family member, loved one, or friend that has been touched by alcoholism, drug addiction, yeah. or mental mm -hmm. health. And sometimes it's just educating people. That's all, you know, and you can say, well, would you rather have six or eight cars coming in here every day with people that are sober? Or do you want to watch your 200 cars pull out of your local bar every day and hope to God they don't kill someone because they're drunk? What do you want to do? You know, it's just education. A lot of people are ignorant, unfortunately. You know, they they don't have the details. And that's the whole thing with this pandemic we have. If we had better education and prevention, we wouldn't be in this situation right now. You um, you mentioned you overdosed eight times and three of them you were clinically heart, dead. Heart stop. Help, help, help some of the listeners understand that hey, after the first one, after the first time you're almost clinically dead, what was preventing you? Because you, you entered treatment voluntarily the first time, right? That was 25 years prior. Okay, so that was 25 years prior. That was in 1990. Yeah, we're talking, you know, I didn't get sober until 2012. So can you, can you kind of get us into the mind frame of someone who has had multiple overdoses? What is, What can we do to help them stop using? I know we, we started these leave-behind kids. So, we started so leaving I, education. I, I had an, you got to understand, I, I had a five-bedroom house in the suburbs, three-car garage. I had an office in the Wrigley Building, Michigan Avenue. I made about a half million a year, but I spent it because I had a huge heroin habit. I didn't care if I lived or died. I could give it. I lived to use, I used to live. I mean, I would spend two to three nights a week under Lower Wacker Drive with the homeless people, with my buddy Mike and Cecil and Patch, because that's where I was more comfortable instead of being in my five bedroom house with my wife and four kids. To answer your question, my parents and my, my wife at the time should have got a professional interventionist and had an intervention done on me. Because I was so full of crap, I turned my wife into my enabler, my parents, and I asked them after the fact, why didn't you do anything? And well, this and that, they should have hired an interventionist and done an intervention out of the gate. Or my wife and kids should have left. You know? Yeah. So was it at that time? Was it the absence of connection? Was it toxic relationships that? No. You, I, you you do heroin. You fall in love with it. That's all I care about. <laughs> That's it. I still. You got to understand. I still ran. Uh, I was a Cub Scout packmaster. I ran thirty-eight Cub Scout tents. You know, doing all the meetings, the Pinewood Derbies, the parade, shooting heroin every day. I totally functioned. I went to work. I ran the Cubs. I was a pack master. I went on every day doing heroin. Nobody knew I did it. No one.
Fair enough. Fair yeah. Enough. And unfortunately, that's the way a lot of people are today. You know, and if they're not doing heroin, the pills or whatever, I mean, people don't. And I don't know the answer to your question. My wife and I were doing an intervention a month ago with an A-list celebrity. A house in the, in, in the hills, more money than they know what to do with in the loneliest person in the world because all they're doing is Ambien, Xanax, Soma, buying Oxycontin and Xanax on the street and has no clue about fentanyl, overdosing, nothing. This happens on a daily basis. Talk about fentanyl, Tim. What are you seeing now? Since you, you've done so many interventions, I mean, one time, one kid at one party, hey, take this pill, you'll have a great time, boom, done. Never used drugs, never thought of drugs, pure pressure that one woman. How has fentanyl changed the game? The, the entire drug game has changed. And don't get me wrong, <clears throat> I'm, I'm not sitting here telling people, and I don't want people... I know people are going to experiment and, and I've got a lot of people I grew up with that, you know, in the high, out of high school, college, young business years, they might've tried a little cocaine or smoked some weed or whatever, but they never had an issue. Here's the problem. Those recreational people are dying. I mean, when you're having fentanyl put in cocaine, a kid thinks he's buying a Xanax bar or an Oxycontin pill. Or whatever. I mean, fentanyl is 50 to 100 times stronger than pure heroin. Carfentanyl, I mean, that's an elephant tranquilizer. Three grains of it will kill 10 people. And that is what is being cut into crystal methamphetamine, into pills, into cocaine, into heroin. And there's no coming back from fentanyl. You do fentanyl, you're going to die. And that's all there is to it. And the thing is, Overdoses are, are getting worse. When I started eight years ago, I think 117 people a day were dying. It's over 200 right now, and it's not getting any better. So right. we really need to look at, it, it, obviously, if we have a 90% failure rate in treatment and 10% success rate, we're doing something drastically wrong. But it needs to be on a, a, a federal level and change drastically because uh, we're losing too many people. So so federal level, you mentioned a peer-driven program. And right now, in my experience, peer support, I've heard peer support is equally as important, if not more important than, than treatment. But we're not, it's not sustainable. We have a peer, peer recovery community right now that is struggling to make ends meet because they have no billing opportunities, no reimbursement opportunities. Is that the direction we need to head? Giving well, more federal funding to peer support? So on the flip side, go up to McHenry County and see what Chris Reed's doing. He he runs the other side, which was the sober nightclub and bar. They opened a coffee shop. He's got new directions, sober living. They opened a they bought a homeless shelter and opened, I think, a 40 bed peer driven program. And they have a for profit treatment center so they can basically help anybody. <clears throat> you have no insurance. We'll get you detox. We'll put you in our peer driven program. You need sober living, we have that. Their model is working, but you also have a community where it's probably easier to get jobs versus Dixon. I mean, if, if you can't get a job in Dixon, you have to get on the highway and go down the road 20 miles to the next community. Right. So that's one of the downsides. 
But the, the sober living, uh, you could have a peer-driven program. It's a matter of getting a couple of the bigger industries in Dixon willing to hire people that are living in these sober homes and give them a fair wage to live in, in a, an opportunity to grow within their organization. You, you just laid out a very interesting template with Chris Reed's program, and I'm very excited to research that after this, after this talk. You mentioned your peer-driven program. How is yours similar to his? Or I don't run. I don't run a peer-driven program. I used when we were using Manor Recovery Foundation. We had a pl place in South Carolina called Oaks Recovery, which um, at the time we could get people in for twelve hundred bucks a person, and that would pay for their first thirty days. They have to be detoxed. Um, no mind-altering substances. It's men only. No cell phones. First two weeks, you're getting acclimated. Everybody works part-time. They help you get a job. Then you pay your own way through the program. So you're going through the steps. You're learning to work and pay bills and manage your money and pay rent and, and be accountable. And after 90 days, you've already went through the steps and you're taking the new people through it. You have the spiritual awakening. That's what's missing in so many programs. I can't tell you how many people still go to... 12-step meetings today that have never worked the steps because that's what I did for 30 years. I never worked them. So does it, do you believe the 12-step program works, but only Absolutely. if you're committed to walking them? It's a great, there, there's nothing that can compare to it. More people are in long-term recovery through the 12 steps, in my opinion, than any other program in the world. The problem is, well, it doesn't work. I don't believe in God. I People would rather bash it than try it. And if, if everybody in the country did the 12 steps, whether you're an alcoholic or not, you would be a better person. It's as simple as that. But people want to fight. They want to do this. Do what works for you. I don't care, but it only works if you work it. There's my other, freebie for the day. <laughs> Any other closing thoughts, Tim? I really appreciate your time today. And it's not, nah, you know, it's a broken combo. Don't judge a book by its cover. Give everybody a shot. If they got a heartbeat, they got hope, put your hand up, ask for help. If I can do it, anybody can. I love it. My name is Akhil Khan, director of Project Open. Please visit theprojectopen.com to learn more about what we do. This recording will live on YouTube, Facebook, and the Project Open page. Um, again, with us, Tim Ryan. We're going to go through a recovering heroin addict, Amy's dope man, national thought leader, founder of a man in recovery foundation and author of from dope to hope among many other things very much appreciated your time and uh we'll see you soon take care have a great day i appreciate it thank you well as i said that was a great interview with uh, akil and tim ryan and uh, i really uh, enjoyed meeting both uh tim and his wife and and you know, getting to know their story. Uh, as always, you know, we're about help. And if you need help, reach out. Somebody in, in, in the area wants to be there for you, whether that be a social service agency, law enforcement, recovery community organizations like Salt Valley Voices of Recovery. Wherever you are, there's somebody who's willing to reach out for you. If you can't find them, then give us a call at 779-707-0151 or go to our website at svbor.org. In the meantime, I want to thank Akil Khan. I want to thank Tim Ryan. I want to thank Slang Music Group. Um, the show is produced by me, doing my best. So, you know, please excuse any oops. Um, but uh, 
just know that we're here for you if you need us. Until next time, thanks.